Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Long Short. We hope you're all enjoying the Perspective series that's been running for a few weeks now, but we're deviating slightly from that to do a bit of a public service announcement to directly address one of the most important and controversial regulatory issues of the moment, namely the Private Fund Advisor Rules, or PFAR, which was published in its final form on the 23rd of August and has understandably attracted a fair amount of interest from across our industry, as well as the media and other stakeholders since then. AIMA members can go to the events section of our website and access hours of webinar discussions on every aspect of this topic, as well as being able to visit the Spotlight on Compliance section under regulation on the homepage for loads of additional resources. But given the critical importance of this rulemaking for the global private funds industry, we wanted to break down exactly what was going on and why it matters in a forum that is available to everyone. To do just that, I am delighted to be joined by AIMA's Global Head of Asset Management Regulation and Sound Practices, Jennifer Wood, who has been living and breathing PFAR for almost two years now and is one of the best placed people outside the SEC to talk on this topic. Jennifer, you and your team have been on quite a journey with this, so thank you so much for taking the time out to join me on The Long Short. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me. All 660-odd pages of the final rules are now available, and you and your world-class team have thoroughly reviewed the whole thing. As many listeners will know, AIMA spent over a year engaging with the SEC on the highly damaging terms of the original proposal, but when the final version was published last month, there were a significant number of revisions and amendments, and we're going to get to all of that in good time. But just to start at the beginning... Let's talk about the original proposal. What were the main terms there and why were they so damaging? Well, the original proposal had six primary elements. The first was a requirement for registered investment advisors to document their annual compliance review in writing. And then there was a requirement for registered investment advisors to distribute quarterly reports to investors that meet certain specific requirements, which differed between liquid and illiquid funds. The third was a requirement for registered investment advisors to cause each private fund that they advise to undergo a financial statement audit, meeting certain minimum requirements, and have that done at least annually and upon liquidation if the fund isn't otherwise undergoing such an audit. Fourth was a restriction on the ability of registered investment advisors to complete an advisor-led secondary transaction unless prior to the transaction the advisor had obtained an independent fairness opinion and distributed it to investors with a written summary of any material business relationships that the advisor or any of its related persons had uh, in the last two years with the opinion provider. And then fifth was a series of activities um, that all advisors, regardless of their registration status, would be prohibited from engaging in regardless of disclosure and regardless of investor consent. And those included uh, restrictions on charging certain fees and expenses to a fund uh, or its portfolio investments, such as monitoring, servicing, consulting, or other fees in respect of any of the services that the investment advisor does not or does not reasonably expect to provide to the portfolio investment. Um, This would include things like accelerated payments um, there's also that would also include any fees or expenses associated with an examination or investigation of the advisor or its related persons by any governmental or regulatory authority. And finally, 
any regulatory or compliance fees or expenses of the advisor or its related persons. Also prohibited would be uh, reducing the amount of any advisor clawback by actual potential or hypothetical taxes applicable to the advisor or its related persons or any of their owners or interest holders. Um, next is um, restriction on seeking reimbursement, indemnification, exculpation, or the limitation of liability by the private fund or its investors for a breach of fiduciary duty, uh, will, willful misfeasance, bad faith, negligence as opposed to gross negligence, or reckless, uh, recklessness in providing the services to the fund. And uh, fourth in this list, charging or allocating fees and expenses related to a portfolio investment um, on a non-pro rata basis when multiple private funds and other clients advised by the advisor or its related persons have invested or proposed to invest in the same portfolio investment. And finally, borrowing money securities or other private fund assets or receiving a loan or extension of credit from a private fund cl uh, client. All of those would be restricted. And then last but not least, um, the, the proposal also contained a ban on preferential treatments with respect to two things. The first would be a, a ban on granting investors in a private fund or a substantially similar pool of assets, the ability to redeem on terms the advisor reasonably expects would have a material negative effect on other investors in that fund or a substantially similar pool of assets and on providing um, information regarding portfolio holdings or exposures of the private fund or a substantially similar pool of assets to any investor if the advisor reasonably expects that providing that information would again have a material negative effect on other advisors in that private fund or a substantially similar pool of assets. Advisors would also have been prohibited from directly or indirectly through, uh, through their related persons providing any other preferential terms to any private fund investor unless the advisors distributed certain pre-investment and annual ongoing disclosures. <laughs> that is an awful lot. I, I can see where your team has been kept so busy since that proposal first came out. And, and as part of, of the engagement that I, that I mentioned in my introduction that, that AMA has been doing with the SEC throughout this process, there was a comment letter that we submitted, which in itself was over 100 pages long. And, and I can see now why it was so long and if it had to um, respond to, to each and every one of those points. For those of us that may not be legal or, or regulatory experts, what were the highlights of, of that letter in layman's terms, if you can? Sure. Um, we, we, we told the SEC generally that we thought that the proposal would harm investors through diminished efficiency and competition uh, in the f private fund market and would impose needless uh, added burdens on investors' ability to deploy capital in private funds. We also thought it would disproportionately harm smaller advisors, including minority and women-owned businesses, uh, which, which is uh, an unfortunate um, outgrowth of these proposals. Um, we also thought that all of the proposals together would ultimately increase the cost that investors would have to bear, making it more difficult for investors to receive 
uh, information that they they specifically wanted uh, tailored to their compliance and portfolio management and ESG goals or other requirements. So a, a lot of the the, um, the restrictions would, would make it more difficult for the investors to, to do their own internal um, business. And then finally, uh, we thought it would be um, unnecessarily diverting commission resources from the protection of retail investors where that where the commission should be focusing its it's a time toward the protection of sophisticated, knowledgeable investors who retain or, or have access to professional advisors in connection with their own investments in private funds. And we didn't think that those intermediated uh, investments needed the, the level of uh, protection that was being proposed. We also explained that we believe that the overly prescriptive reporting requirements and categorical prohibitions on on certain activities wasn't the optimal approach to protecting private fund investors and that such an approach would ultimately result in less comparable and useful disclosure to investors and um, some some other adverse consequences which are laid out in, in specificity in our in our letter we also explained in detail why we thought the proposal exceeded the sec's statutory authority why it had an insufficient cost-benefit analysis and how it would interfere with the agreements between private fund investors and advisors, which reflect the, the thoughtful uh, considerations of costs, benefits, and the alignment of interests between the uh, manager and, and the investors uh, and the allocation of risk to strike a balance that ultimately benefits investors. And that's, that's why uh, we got to 107 pages. So, so let's dig into this just a little bit further then. And just to really emphasize the um, well, the, the predicted um, consequences of these, this is obviously a huge amount to dive into. But in terms of what the most pressing concerns were and, and, and how that would likely play out in the real world if these terms were to be enforced. All right. I'll give you my top eight. Try and keep it keep it brief. So the first one is the ban on being able to provide preferential redemption rights, making it more diff- difficult for new funds to receive seed and early stage capital, and also making it impossible for some investors to invest if they were required by law to have certain redemption rights. The second, having to do with preferential treatments, uh, is that um, those preferential treatment requirements were likely to chill communications between advisors and investors, including in one-on-one discussions and discussions during the ongoing periodic due diligence process, and would limit the, the ability to receive bespoke disclosures to meet the internal needs of investors as well. Third, um, we, we thought that uh, there was just going to be a prohibition of of activities that the SEC uh, has never once suggested were per se unlawful. And uh, the SEC failed to consider uh, why it was that disclosure and consent wasn't a sufficient approach, uh, which we'll see in the final rules they they decided to to turn back to, which was a good thing. Um, We also addressed um, and and thought that our, our fourth issue was the imposition of a negligence standard that would have gone well beyond uh, the the federal fiduciary duty 
and imposed that standard with respect to all aspects of what the advisor did, which um, we thought was beyond what the SEC was, was permitted to do. Um, fifth, there's a, there was in the proposal of going to be a ban on passing through compliance and regulatory expenses, even if fully disclosed, which would have affected any fund that had a full pass-through expense structure, uh, which would have been problematic uh, for a lot of reasons. Sixth, um, we thought that uh, the proposal was, was a wide application of the requirements to uh, non-U.S. registered investment advisors um, and to exempt advisors who, to whom the substantive provisions of the Advisors Act and the related rules haven't historically applied. We asked for uh, all, of, all of that to be extended so that um, those non-U.S. registered investment advisors and exempt advisors would be excluded from the requirements. And then finally, the last two, um, we, we had issues with the total lack of grandfathering and the short, very short 12-month compliance period, uh, which um, would have imposed a, a massive burden um, given that all of the repapering would have to be done within that 12-month period. Excellent. So jumping ahead to the final version of the rules, I believe that some of the proposed bans that you just referenced there around preferential treatment are now only restricted in some form or other. So I guess that's crisis avoided then, right? Well, no, not really. Uh, you're, you're correct that preferential treatments that were banned outright in the proposal are now going to be allowed under certain conditions. However, those conditions uh, still amount to a ban in most cases. Under the final rule, an advisor may not directly or indirectly grant an investor in, in the private fund or in a similar pool of assets the ability to redeem its interest on terms that the advisor reasonably expects to have a material negative effect on other investors uh, in, that pool, in that fund or in a similar pool of assets. All of that's um, similar to what was proposed. There are two exceptions. The first exception is if um, the ability to redeem is required by applicable law, rule, regulation, or order of any relevant foreign or U.S. government, state, or political subdivision to which the investor, the fund, or the similar pool of assets is subject, you can, you can grant that, um, that uh, redemption right, that preferential redemption right. Um, second exception is maybe not even ex an exception um, but the, the second uh, item here is that the advisor um, is allowed to give a, a, a quote-unquote preferential redemption right if it has offered the same redemption ability to all other existing investors and will continue to offer such redemption ability to all future investors in the fund and any similar pool of assets. And the, the adopting release here elaborates that the SEC expects such an offer to be without any qualifications. So um, that's, that's, not, that's an exception. That's not an exception because you're, you're effectively banning it since you have to provide it to everybody. Um, uh, you know, it's not a preference. With respect to portfolio disclosures, uh, the advisor uh, still can't directly or indirectly 
provide information regarding the portfolio holdings or exposures of the private fund or a similar pool of assets to any investor in the private fund if the advisor reasonably expects that providing the information would have a material negative effect on other investors in that private fund or in a similar pool of assets with one exception. And that exception is if the advisor offers the information to all other existing investors in the fund and any similar pool of assets at the same time or substantially the same time. So again, um, a preference that's not a preference. Can I just ask you to um, just just a, a, again for this is you you've mentioned sort of the term uh, a similar pool of assets, which is sort of on the surface seems quite. Um, obvious, but could you just maybe give us a definition or an example just to to help sort of paint that picture of, of what exactly is being proposed here? The adopting release uh, provides a, an example of what a similar pool of assets is, um, stating that an advisor's healthcare-focused private fund may be considered a similar pool of assets to the advisor's technology-focused private fund under the under the definition. Um, so it's an extremely uh, wide view that the SEC is putting forward, and this could leave advisors having to offer any in-scope disclosures of portfolio holdings and exposures uh, or, or, uh, to, uh, of a technology fund to investors in a healthcare-focused fund in which they haven't invested and may never have been marketed to them. And given the nature of the marketing rules in some countries, this could actually mean that the advisors would be then considered to be marketing the technology-focused fund to the investors in the healthcare-focused fund, uh, which would be a difficult thing for advisors to have to grapple with in addition to the, the basic rules from the SEC. So, so if I understand this correctly, then, if a, a, a private fund has a, a technology-focused product and they want to launch a, a healthcare focused products or, or the reverse and in order to launch that product they wanted to offer preferential terms to um, early investors or, or startup investors however you want to sort of categorize them the moment they wanted to do that or did that they would then be in violation of this unless they then offered those preferential terms whether that be um, to do with redemptions or transparency of, of reporting or, or, or fees or something, they would have to either disclose or um, offer those to investors in established funds. Uh, exactly. So if, if the whatever the redemption rights were, were going to be um, a, a material, um, uh, ha- have a material negative effect on the investors in, in um, that similar pool of assets, um, or um, the transparency was going to have a, a material negative effect, then they would have to disclose that. Uh, and certainly the redemption, the, the redemption terms would have to be open to people on an unqualified basis. So if you had a seed investor uh, and they were receiving a, a, an open redemption right um, to, to come out on, on terms that would be more preferential than what would be offered to other investors in that fund uh, because of the seed investment, um, that that could be problematic under these rules. You'd, you'd have to offer that class to, to everybody uh, in, in the future. So uh, again, not a preference, but, but really a restriction on the ability to have different redemption rights um, in some senses. 
and just one would assume that that would ultimately make it much more difficult to to market new products then without being able to offer these um, sweeteners. I think people will have to work through the details of it and how how it actually works based on the uh, portfolio funds that they have, and it will depend highly on the facts and circumstances for for each advisor and each group of funds that they're trying to offer. Um, So lots of things for people to work through. EMA are delighted to announce the return of the annual Alternative Credit Council Global Summit on Wednesday the 4th of October. The one-day conference will focus on the most prominent themes in private credit, including the ESG Integrated Disclosure Project, fund structuring, the value proposition of private credit for investors, retailization, and more. Taking place in the heart of the City of London, this will be a prime opportunity for LPs, GPs, and service providers to gather and showcase the full breadth of the asset class. To find out more about the summit and to register, visit the AMO website. The, the other thing I really wanted to bring up to you was this point, and I've, I've alluded to it, or, or we both alluded to it a few times, that this is a um, not just a US issue and, and in fact will affect um, many types of uh, market participants around the world. And this is something that I know that w- we as uh, AMA have been pushing out because it is potentially something that is uh, an angle to the story that has flown under the radar. So if we could just address that point directly, how exactly will these rules impact n- uh, non-US managers and advisors? Yeah, the, the SEC did take on board some of what we suggested in relation to non-US advisors but it didn't didn't give um, the complete relief that we were looking for. So let me just break it down. So with respect to the quarterly statement rule, the audit rule and the advisor led secondaries rule, those requirements will not apply to to the non-US private fund clients of an SEC registered non-US advisor, regardless of whether those pools have U.S. investors in, in them. Um, any U.S. private funds that are advised by a non-U.S. registered investment advisor will still be affected by those rules. Um, so not, not complete relief. With respect to the restricted activities requirements and the preferential treatment requirements, those two sets of rules apply to all re- all advisors, regardless of their registration status. But consistent with uh, historical precedent, um, the restricted activities rule and the preferential treatment rule won't apply with respect to uh, um, to the registered offshore advisors non-US US private funds, regardless of whether they have US investors, and um, in line with, with the, uh, the treatment of ERAs and exempt advisors, generally the restricted activities rule and the preferential treatment rule will also not apply to offshore unregistered advisors, which would be non-US ERAs and uh, advisors who are classified as foreign private advisors with respect to their offshore funds, regardless of whether those funds have U.S. investors. So if you uh, are an exempt reporting advisor and you're, uh, for example, um, providing um, advice to a 
a Cayman fund. Um, that Cayman fund, uh, you won't be in, in scope with respect to that Cayman fund. However, if the Cayman fund is a master feeder and there's a U.S. feeder uh, on in the structure, then the exempt reporting advisor may still be subject to those rules, the, the restricted activities rule and the preferential treatment rule with respect to the U.S. feeder. Um, so um, a little bit of... Um, of uh, the requirement will still apply to to that advisor, uh, and if you are having that U.S. Um, feeder, the result could be that because of the re related persons rules and the similar pool of pools of assets concepts, there could be indirect effects for the advisor's non-U.S. clients. So a lot of additional things to think through for uh, non-U.S. ERAs and foreign private advisors, as well as non-U.S. registered investment advisors. And I, I don't know if anyone is keeping score at this point, but I believe um, a few of those are changes that were in line with uh, AMA's um, suggestions in our, in our initial um, response letter, which we, we mentioned before. Absolutely. And just another shameless plug here, just to say uh, any AMA members listening can listen to a, a dedicated webinar on our website at the moment that does address this in what I believe Jennifer described previously as excruciating detail. So, uh, so anyone who, who does want to spend more time on this point, which obviously a very important one for many people. We've covered a huge amount already and there is there is so much still to digest but just before we move on were there any other landmines in the final rules that surprised you or, or just sort of to put it another way is there anything that jumped out at you because it was there or, or maybe that it wasn't there even if the advisor can get that consent which is questionable the advisor isn't permitted to allocate fees and expenses related to an investigation that results or has resulted in a court or governmental authority imposing a sanction for a violation of the Advisors Act. In that case, any previously charged fees or expenses would have to be reimbursed. So all of those are a challenge for advisors. With regard to legacy status, the availability of the grandfathering relief is pretty limited. First, there's no legacy status with respect to the written documentation of an annual compliance review. Uh, requirements, the quarterly statements rule, the audited financial statements rule, or the advisor's uh, led secondary rule. No, no legacy status for any of those. There's also no legacy status with respect to any of the disclosure requirements related to restricted activities or preferential treatments. So advisors will need to review the terms of any agreements that might limit the advisor's ability to make the required disclosures and consider whether any amendments might need to be, to be made in order to allow the advisor to comply. For the restricted activities uh, requirements, legacy status only applies with respect to the parts that require investor consent. And then only if the agreement was in writing related to the fund that has commenced operations and was in effect at the time of the compliance date, and only then if compliance would require the parties to amend those agreements. So every agreement has to be considered and a determination made whether the agreement prohibits the compliance and the only way to comply would be to amend the agreement. 
in the end, this will be a pretty narrow legacy right and will require a lot of work to verify that it's available to be used at all. And I think this is an important distinction to be made here because uh, reading some of the immediate coverage after the final rules dropped, a lot of people quite understandably uh, jumped on what at the surface seemed like um, quite a big reversal in that there was no grandfathering and now all of a sudden there was grandfathering or, or, or legacy treatment as uh, as Gary Gensler put it. But it is in fact uh, on reading the finer details, as you say, it is, is far more limited than what it seemed. And um, this is something that, that through doing this podcast and, and other pieces of content, we're hoping to spread awareness of because um, that, that initial review is, is potentially um, inaccurate, I guess, or sort of only a partial answer to, to where we're at today. The elephant in the room here is obviously the uh, the the litigation process, which has now started and has been well documented um, everywhere, pretty much. And as much as I'm sure a lot of listeners would like us to opine on that in greater detail, um, the nature of the situation means that we can't, for now at least. Um, but that is an important caveat to to the next question I wanted to put to you, which is around implementation, because. Um, as far as I understand it, although things are going on in the background, uh, those in scope for these rules should um, pretty much ignore that and until told otherwise and, and should begin to working towards um, an implementation deadline that was set out in the final rules, although there, there are some caveats. But could you just talk around that a little bit and explain um, what some of the, the, the main deadlines are over the next um, year or so? Sure. As we're recording this, um, I just want to note that the um, Federal Register publication is meant to be tomorrow, September the 14th, so all of the compliance dates will, will key off of that publication date. But um, you know, let's, let's take them down in order. Compliance with the requirement to document compliance reviews in writing will be required from 60 days from tomorrow, so sort of uh, mid-November time. Uh, I'm not going to count on the fly what 60 days is. Um, compliance with the quarterly statement rule and the private fund audit rule will be required for all registered investment advisors by 18 months following the publication in the Federal Register. So 18 months from tomorrow, which will effectively be, um, let's call it March 14th, 2025. Um, compliance with the advisor-led secondaries rule for investment advisors, as well as the preferential treatment rule and the, and the restricted activities rule, uh, which each apply to all investment advisors last to do, will vary between small and large advisors uh, along the lines of their regulatory assets under management. Regulatory assets under management is um, as defined in the form ADV and is a grossed up figure, uh, not NAV. So just be aware of that. For large advisors, uh, which are ones that are over 1.5 billion of regulatory assets under management attributable to private funds that they advise, um, the compliance date will be 12 months following the publication of the new requirements in the Federal Register, or in other words, September the 14th, 2024. And for small advisors, the ones that are less than 
1.5 billion in regulatory assets under management attributable to private funds that they advise. Uh, compliance is due 18 months following the publication in the Federal Register. Uh, so again, March 14th, 2025. Although the coalition has now filed suit, there can't be any guarantee that final adjudication will occur prior to the required compliance dates. Therefore, compliance by the deadlines is likely to still be necessary. For those of you who have been in business a while, you'll recall what happened in 2004 with the SEC's first attempted advisor registration requirements. In that case, the commission attempted to expand its statutory authority absent congressional approval by redefining a fund manager client under the Advisors Act uh, to ensure that the limit in a long-standing exemption that relied on client count would be exceeded and therefore compel investment advisor registration for most hedge fund managers from whom the SEC was at that time seeking additional transparency. This misused definition of client was struck down by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia in June 2006 in the case Philip Goldstein et al. versus SEC. As a result, the SEC was forced to seek a change in the Advisors Act itself from Congress before it could proceed with requiring uh, certain advisors to register. Although the Goldstein litigation ultimately was successful in getting the registration requirements overturned, it wasn't before many fund managers had already incurred the costs and dealt with the complexities of SEC registration, a process which was difficult if not impossible for many fund managers to unwind in the aftermath. And in, in this instance, managers should be prepared for the possibility that something similar will happen. Um, AIM will be doing its part to help members prepare uh, we'll, we'll have a full summary of the rules fleshed out with the details you only get from reading the release and, the, and especially the footnotes rather than just the headlines and fact sheets, and that will be released in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're planning a series of webinars delving into the specifics of the six parts of the rule and offering practical tips on where the challenges will lie. We'll also be offering a more in-depth look at specific aspects of the challenges that these rules will present, such as how you're meant to decide whether a fund is a similar fund uh, or a similar pool of assets in practice, for example. Later, we'll follow up with a full implementation guide and various group calls to allow interested members to discuss compliance matters with their peers. In other words, AMA's implementation work will be presented proceeding in the same way it would have been even if the lawsuit had not been brought. Yes, that is an important point to make that although um, in many ways this is the center of our universe, the, the rest of the solar system of regulatory issues continues to, to spin around us and, and all of our other team members are, are working hard on that and lots more to come on that in terms of who you will hear from on the long short in the, in the weeks and months to come. And there's loads of dates to, to put in your calendars there and, and lots to look forward to. And, and you've mentioned some of the work that AIMA members will benefit from. Um, but could you just uh, tell us where they can go to get more help or to get more information? Sure. More information like timelines, summaries, webinar replays can be accessed on the AIMA website. First, go to the regulation tab and then choose Spotlight on Compliance. On that page, select Spotlight on U.S. Compliance. 
And then once you click through that, you should see the option to select the private fund advisor rules. And that's the page where you'll find all of those uh, extra materials. AMA members can also submit questions to pfarules at ama.org. That's pfarules at ama.org. So listeners will, will now be aware of just how devilish the details are in this particular instance. Uh, so Jennifer, I just want to thank you so much again for, for coming on and breaking it down for those of us who are a little bit too intimidated to take on that 600 plus page final rules document. And I'm sure we will have you on again to give us the update as all this progresses. But I, I do hope you get some time off to recover from last month before then. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us on The Long Short. Thanks, Drew. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.